Well, good morning to everybody in the room and good morning to all of you folks in Quakertown. It's good to be with you and good to see you on this nice morning, even though it's cold. We're kind of at the front end of a series that we're calling This is the Life. And let me just tell you, with this weather and this forecast, uh, this is not the life, by the way. And to make matters worse, I have four good friends in Florida. They have each tweeted, texted, and called me to say, Charles, it's 85 and sunny. The golf course is almost empty. This is the life. Yeah, thanks. They are ex-friends this morning. I'll just have you know. Well, in this series, we're looking at um, the life that Jesus calls us to. And we're comparing that and contrasting that with the life that we often set our sights on. And we say, this is the life. And as we work through that comparison and contrast... Hopefully we're going to see that the life Jesus presents and offers and invites us to far surpasses the life that we can dream for ourselves. Last week we looked at that first team. We looked at the team that Jesus assembled. And we saw that they came from different backgrounds, different socioeconomic levels. They had different political persuasions. And my guess is they fought a lot. You know, we kind of sanitize it as we read through the Gospels. But my guess is they bickered and they complained and they fought and they wanted some of the team to be thrown off the team. Well, some things never change, right? God calls us in all of our difference to come together and form a team with him at the center, rearranging our priorities so that our differentness gets called together in the unity of following Christ primarily. Well, we're going to follow up with the passage that followed, the one we looked at last week, by looking at Matthew 10, beginning in verse 5. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew 10, or you can follow along as I read. And we're going to look at the assignment that Jesus called that team to. What's the mission that Jesus presents to that original team? And as he presents that mission to them, that assignment to the original team, that's our assignment and our mission too. We continue what Jesus started differently. So follow along as we read the assignment, beginning in verse 5. These 12, Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Do not take any gold or silver or copper to take with you on your, in your belts. No bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Truly I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore be as shrewd as snakes, but as innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and to be flogged in the synagogues. On my account... You will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say. For it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. 
Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. Truly, I tell you, you will not finish going through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. The student is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for students to be like their teachers and servants like their masters. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household? Now, some of you are thinking, what's it going to take us, two weeks to look at all that in there? Well, we're not going to look at most of what's in there. But we are going to look at kind of the key turning points of that mission or that assignment. And I guarantee you, by the time we're done, we won't have answered all your questions. But you'll probably have kind of a rough outline of what Jesus calls us to and what he called that original group to. The first thing you have to remember is it's all about compassion. If we're going to talk about motivation and the driving engine for ministry, it's going to be compassion. Now, if we're going to understand the weirdness of Matthew 10 and the assignment, here's the most important thing you have to understand. You ready? Most important thing in understanding Matthew 10. Matthew 10 comes after Matthew 9. It comes right after Matthew 9. You might say, well, big deal. It is a major big deal. Let me show you. Matthew 9 describes Jesus' mission. So if you've ever wondered if God were to come to earth, what he would do when he got here, you can read it in Matthew chapter 9. So when God showed up, right, we talk about the acts of the story. Well, act 4, God appears, Jesus shows up. What did he do? Well, when God showed up, here's what he did. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now, having just read the assignment in Matthew 10, do those words sound familiar? In a nutshell, Jesus says to that first group of disciples, you guys now go do what I've been doing. I've been teaching and bringing freedom and relief to people. Now you go preaching, bringing freedom and relief to people. I've been awakening them by the love of God. You now go and awaken them by the love of God. You need to continue what I've been doing, and it's going to be a little different. So you can't understand Matthew 10 without understanding Matthew 9. Well, let, let's look at a couple things up here. First of all, the idea of compassion. Now, we often think of compassion only in emotional terms. So last Saturday, Kim and I were in Philadelphia, and we're pulling up to Vine Street, ready to make a right to come home. And we get to Vine Street, and there is um, a homeless person, I assume, knocking on all the car windows, shaking his Wawa cup, asking for change. And my guess is every person in every car felt what Kim and I felt. We felt empathy. We felt sorry for the guy. We would say we felt compassion. But that's not necessarily what the Bible means. The Bible, when it uses the word compassion, doesn't only mean you feel something. The Bible means you feel something and you do something on the basis of feeling something. So, for example, most of you probably have heard of the parable of the Good Samaritan. That's a parable of compassion. So here's this guy, this Jewish guy, probably returning home after worship or traveling to the temple or something. He gets beat up and robbed by a group of thugs. And he's left for dead on the side of a road. 
First of all, a priest comes by, a religious guy, right? And my guess is he really felt for the guy, right? He said, man, it's, it's terrible to be you. I'm glad I'm not in your situation. But he kept on going. That's not compassion. Then a Levite comes by, kind of a second-class religious guy. He sees the bleed-up, bloody guy on the side of the road, probably moaning. He feels something, too, but he walks right by also. But then a Samaritan goes by, kind of like, you know, the dregs, scum in the barrel. He comes by, he feels something, and he does something. He goes over, he bandages his wounds. He takes oil and wine and pours it on his wounds. He puts the guy on his donkey, takes him to the closest town, pays his room for a couple nights, and says to the owner, when I return, if he owes you anything, I'll pay for it. That's biblical compassion. It's feeling and doing. In fact, the word means literally to suffer with. Not to feel with, but suffer with. And so when you experience compassion, the feeling becomes an action. That's what the Bible's about. It's a feeling that drives action. And if you look at the ministry, the life of Jesus, it's suffering with, isn't it? It's a feeling of identification and then actions of identification and changing the situation. Not just feeling, but acting on the feeling and changing it. So there's the idea of compassion. Do you notice what animal Jesus compares us to here? Uh, what animal? A sheep. I thought about that most of the week. I would have chosen a different animal, right? I want to be a tiger or a lion, right? Uh, maybe even a horse, a crocodile. Yeah, go ahead. Mess with me then if I'm a crocodile, right? Uh, we wouldn't choose a sheep. Um, you realize sheep are dumb and dirty. They're stupid and stinky. And most sheep problems are self-inflicted. Did you ever notice that? They eat the wrong stuff. They wander away and get lost. Most sheep problems are self-inflicted. Jesus says, you're all a bunch of sheep. Stupid and stinky, dumb and dirty. Most of the problems we have are self-inflicted. Does that embarrass you? I mean, Jesus nails it, though, doesn't he? Don't believe me? Uh, look around the room. <laughs> yeah. Stupid, stinky, dumb and dirty, right? Most of our problems are self-inflicted. But here's the point. You kind of look at a sheep and you say, I don't want to be a sheep, right? Hey, smell, hold your nose. But you can't hate sheep, can you? I mean, you can hate lots, you can hate cats, but you can't hate sheep. And I've never, I just can't stand sheep. I wish there were no, you can't hate a sheep. Yeah, they're dumb and dirty. Most of their problems are self-inflicted, but you can't hate them. They're lovable little things, right? Jesus says, when I see you all, I think of sheep. Stupid and stinky. Dumb and dirty. Most of your problems are self-inflicted. And I love you guys. As unlovable as you may be, I love you. That's compassion. And Jesus just doesn't feel something. He does something. Also, there's something else you need to know in what Jesus uh, does. He doesn't just compare us to sheep. He proclaims a message. You see the message? The good news of the kingdom. And in the verses that we're going to look at in a minute from Matthew 10, the idea of sheep come up again, and the idea of kingdom comes up again. What's the message Jesus proclaims? The good news, by the way, good news is gospel. Jesus proclaims the gospel of the kingdom. In fact, when you read through the gospels, those words almost always go together. When you read the word gospel, 
It means kingdom. It's the good news of the kingdom. Now, we've kind of gotten away from that a little bit, you know, all these thousands of years after uh, New Testament times. And when I say the word gospel in a church context, people think of things like this. Oh, gospel means that I need to ask Jesus into my heart. Gospel means that Jesus has forgiven my sins. And those things are kind of true. But in the Bible, gospel's never referred to as asking Jesus into your heart, ever. In the Bible, gospel's not all the little good gifts that God gives you. In the Bible, it's the good news of the kingdom. So you think, well, what the heck does that mean? Well, let me explain it like this. How many of you have ever worked at a place, a business, a corporation, a nonprofit, you know, whatever? Have you ever worked somewhere where the boss was actually incompetent? Now, don't raise your hand. No, your boss may be here, right? No. Uh, and any of you who work at Calvary, all you staff, you better keep your hands down, all right, at Calvary Church. Have you ever worked at a place where it's obvious the boss and the leadership are incompetent? As time goes on, everybody kind of knows, right? Customer service begins to diminish or disappear. Morale is tanked. Profits begin to decline and eventually become non-existent. Black ink becomes red ink. If there's incompetent leadership, the bottom begins to fall out. And it may be a gradual decline, but make no mistake, there will be a decline if there's incompetence at the head. That's what happened when human beings decided they would be the CEO of the universe. So the story goes like this. God creates all that exists and says, hey, I've got a plan. Since I'm the creator, I'll be king. Since I created everything and I'm wiser than all of you guys and I designed the universe to work in a certain way, I'll be the CEO. So I'll kind of draw up the plans and I'm going to be a benevolent, loving CEO, but life is lived and the way life goes is the way that I'm laying it out. So God is this benevolent CEO that lays life out as it should go, but very quickly in the story, there's a revolt in the ranks and human beings say, we don't want God being CEO. We know how to run this business. We know how to run the company better than God does. So they remove God from his CEO seat. They throw him out of the C-suite, and they move in. And all hell breaks loose, right? And so look around at the world, read the newspaper, and you will see the results of incompetent leadership. Not in a country, not in a town, not in your workplace, but in the universe and the world. So we've been living with incompetent leaders through all of those decades. As human beings have tried to be the CEO of things, Jesus shows up. And what does he say? I'm bringing you good news. The CEO has returned. I have come back to bring the kingdom. I've come back to institute life, inaugurate life as it should be. That's the announcement. The king, the rightful king, has come. That's what the kingdom means. Then you see all the miracles and the mission of Jesus is nothing more than inaugurating the principles and the policies and the tenor of the kingdom. Disease and illness, death, sin are all consequences of incompetent leadership. Jesus comes and he heals bodies that are ill. He raises people that are dead. He forgives sin. He feeds people that are hungry. He reconciles people that are alienated. He restores relationships that have been broken. 
Jesus says, I'm the king, I'm the rightful CEO. And when I rule, when I'm in the C-suite, all of life works as it should work. That's what the kingdom is. That's the good news. And as we move toward that ultimate institution of that kingdom, we get the privilege of doing exactly what Jesus started. Jesus spoke words of the kingdom. He's returned, and this is how it works. And we institute policies and bring the consequences of Jesus' rule in the world. That's what we do. Don't believe me? Let's flip forward to Matthew 10, and here's what we read. Now keep Matthew 9, 35, 36 in your head. As you go, proclaim this message. What's the message Jesus proclaimed? The good news of the kingdom. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. In fact, so near, there he is. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. You see what's going on? All we do is extend what Jesus inaugurated. We pronounce Jesus as the rightful leader, the king, the CEO. We then live lives in sync with his plan, policy, strategies, and procedures. And we influence and extend the consequences of that to people around us. And it's kind of amazing as you read through um, those verses um, to see how everything's in balance. It's almost incredible. So let me share with you just a couple of the balances. First of all, you notice it's word and deed. It's not just go pronouncing the kingdom, calling people to repent and turn back. No, no, no. It's the announcement of the kingdom and the doing of lots of good works. It's word and deed. Isn't it fascinating that churches have kind of gone to an either-or end? Churches have gone to the word end. We're just going to preach the word and condemn everybody and call everybody to repentance. Other churches say, well, we don't want to really offend anybody, so we're not going to do any of the word stuff. We're just going to love people and you know, feed people. It can't be either or. It's both ends. Jesus does both, calls us to do both. There's got to be a word part and there's got to be a deed part. There's got to be a compassion part and there has to be a truth part. They go together. Did you notice also as we read through that there's a simplicity generosity balance so he says to his first team when he sends them out don't take anything with you you know don't load your saddles your you know don't load your bags don't fill your wallet with gold and silver and copper don't take a whole lot of money with you what's the point live simply don't live extravagantly live simply but that's only one side of the balance he also says when you show up at a town there are people there that will partner with you and they will generously fund the mission you're on. If everybody just lives simply by giving everything we have away, where's the generosity component going to come from that's funding things? You ever notice wherever you have mission or ministry, you also have money? And so live simply and live generously. Where do you come up with resources to give generously? Well, you earn it, you accumulate you don't hoard it. You still live simply, but you give generously. There's all these balances going on, right? Compassion and truth, word and deed, simplicity, generosity. And how about this one? Courage and humility. Notice, Jesus, we're going to talk about this in a minute. Jesus sends these people out, and he says, they're going to persecute. People are going to hate you. All this nasty stuff's going to happen. Go with courage. But then he also says, oh, yeah, recognize that um, if the deeds that have been done among you were done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented of their sins. 
You're more responsible. Now, why were they more responsible than Sodom and Gomorrah? Because they knew more of what the gospel was, who Jesus was. They've received the benefit, not just of the teaching, but the experience of who Jesus is. Now, think about that for a minute. You're sitting there listening to another sermon. You're sitting there learning more stuff. And you're thinking, I knew I shouldn't have come today. Look, now I'm more responsible, right? Charles up there saying, see, Charles is saying I shouldn't go to church. Because when I go to church, I become more responsible. It's going to be worse for me. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. But the key is to not learn. That, that, that's not the point. The key is live what you know. So live courageously, live humbly as you learn putting into play the things you're learning. What's happening in Matthew 9 and then in Matthew 10? Here's what's going on. Jesus refuses to let that first team observe what he does and stop there. Isn't that right? He refuses to let them just observe. He refuses to let the crowds just observe what the disciples are doing. He says, all of you go do it. The bottom of that line, there should be no consumer Christians in the church or in the world. But the reality is there are lots of them. Just consuming, right? Taking more in, sitting and soaking, just getting more, but not putting into play. And we live in a world of specialization where it's easy to say, okay, well, my responsibility is to kind of sit and learn, show up, you know, sing a couple songs, listen to a boring sermon, and pay the professionals to do it. I'll give a little offering, pay the professionals to do it. You never find that in the Bible. No consumer Christians. We are all called to be with and we're all sent for we're all called to continue what Jesus started. There are some lives that only you can touch. There are some people that will only listen to you. There are some stories that will only resonate with your story. And you can't wait for somebody else, even if they're a professional, to go do it. We've all got to be involved in that process. So compassion. Kingdom, sheep, compassion, balance. That's how it works. Well, the second big theme in these verses, in case you haven't noticed, is offensive. Do you notice how, uh, beginning in verse 16, how sobering the passage becomes? Uh, let me refresh your memory. Check out these verses. Jesus says, I'm sending you out like sheep among, where's sheep again? I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. <laughs> yeah, sitting ducks. Next one. You will be hated by everyone because of me. Next one. When you are persecuted. You want to sign up for that duty? I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. You'll be hated by everybody because of me. And when, not if you're persecuted, but when you're persecuted. By the way, this is not some little side theme, an anomaly tucked away here, nowhere else in the Bible. This is one of the main themes of the Gospels. If you follow Jesus, you're going to be hurt. You're going to be hated. People are going to push you aside. Jesus is offensive, and when you follow him, so will you be. So let me... Uh, just mention a couple things about that. To prove to you that it's not a side theme, remember, I guess it was last spring or so, we talked about the Sermon on the Mount, remember? Um, and in the Sermon on the Mount, I probably said something like this. If we live as salt and if we live as light, we will be hurt. Remember? Salt, light, hurt, that trio go together. We often only want to link salt and light. Yeah, but there's a third component that Jesus links. Salt, light, hurt. Now that does not mean, and Jesus is not saying in Matthew 10, that every single human being will hate you if you follow Jesus. That's not what it says. Every single human being didn't hate Jesus. 
He's talking to a group of, of apprentices that left their jobs to follow him. They're not hating him. So obviously you got to read it in its context. Some will be attracted and some will be offended. That's the key. Some will be attracted and some will be offended. So here's the test for you. Are you attracting some? Are people inquisitive and curious about what you do and why you do it? You live differently. You live with a different set of priorities, a different set of values. You live with generosity and simplicity. You're living out this weird balance that people can't understand. Are people attracted to that? And are people also offended? So let me say it like this. If people are only offended, my hunches, in fact, I'd be willing to bet, they're not offended because of Jesus, they're offended because you're a jerk. If all you do is offend people, it's probably because you're a condescending, critical, superior thinking, self-righteous jerk. That's why. But if people are attracted and offended, that's threading the needle. That's the gospel, right? Some are attracted, some are offended. That's what happened in Jesus' life. Life. And he said, you'll be like your master, right? Some will be attracted, some will be offended. Is that where you're living? Some attracted, some offended? That's the point. Make sure the offense is because of Jesus and not because of your superior self-righteousness. Two reasons that Jesus is offensive. You can check them out later. First of all, claims. You ever notice some of the claims that Jesus, they're very offensive claims, by the way. Jesus says things like this to a Jewish audience, right? People that believed, you know, our God is one. There's only one God overall. And then Jesus said in that context, oh yeah, by the way, before Abraham was born, I am. He didn't say I was, he said I am. He uses the name of God. And he says, oh yeah, before Abraham was born, I am. They picked up stones to stone the guy, right? And then he says this to a larger audience. On judgment day, you will all appear before me. That's what he says. I mean, who does he think he is? On judgment day, you'll all appear before me and you will say to me, but Lord, didn't we do this in your name? And didn't we do that in your name? I mean, that's offensive, isn't it? I mean, you live your whole, and one day when, when the final's given, Jesus is the one scoring the final exams. That's offensive. But that's not, his claims are not the most offensive. Grace is the most offensive, isn't it? Grace is more offensive than anything. And here's why. Every other religion says something like this. There is the path, go walk the path. There is the mountain, go climb the mountain. There is the giant ladder, try hard and climb the ladder. Here's what Jesus says. You're all too weak to walk the path. You have no chance of climbing the mountain. And you wouldn't even get on the first rung of the ladder. You're too bad. You're too sinful. You're too weak. You're too messed up. You are too screwed up to do anything to fix yourself. That's offensive, isn't it? But that's grace. We like to tuck away a couple percentage points in our minds, right? So we understand Jesus is going to do most of it, right? Jesus will do 95% of the rescuing, but I've got to cooperate 5%. Or Jesus will do, okay, 98%, but I've got to do my 2%. You know what Grace says? Jesus does 100%. You and I contribute nothing. We are too weak. We're too screwed up. We're too sinful. We're too bad to add anything. If we're going to be rescued, it's 100% Jesus and zero us. 
That's offensive, right? Other religions, you have to add your percentage. But Jesus keeps saying, I'm not primarily a teacher. I didn't come to teach you the way. I'm a savior. I'm a rescuer that came to rescue and save you. That is an offensive message. And that's why pompous, self-righteous, religious people who want to be their own CEO, who want to run life and have life go the way they want, they hear Jesus come and say, but I'm the rightful king. I'm the rightful CEO. And for your life to live in sync now and forever, you've got to submit to me. Well, if you want to be the CEO, that's a highly offensive message to hear Jesus say he's the only CEO. But that's the only message we've got. Jesus, highly offensive. And as we go, we will do acts and deeds of compassion. We'll speak words of mercy and grace. But there's also a tenacity about the truth and a confidence in who Jesus is and what he came to do. Well, let's uh, look at one last thing. And that is transformation. So how does that work? Well, you'll notice at the end of the section I read, the apprentices have become like their mentor. You see that? So here are the verses. The student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the students to be like their teachers, for the servants to be like their masters, for the apprentices to be like the master carpenter or whatever. That, that's enough. And that actually happens. But how does it happen? Well, let me explain how transformation works like this. The vast majority of people in the world, and problem is often you and I, ask the wrong first question. And as long as you ask the wrong first question, you're always going to get the wrong answer. Here's the wrong first question. Jesus, can you get me into the college of my choice? If you do, I'll believe you are who you say you are. Jesus, you know I really want to get married. Can you bring me a spouse, one that would really kind of satisfy me, not just now, but for the rest of my life? If you do, I'll believe you are who you say you are. Jesus, you know I'm really struggling financially. Will you, can you please increase my bank account, increase my paycheck, give me more money? And Jesus, if you can do that, then I'll believe you are who you say you are. Jesus, I really want this thing. I really want that thing. Will you give it to me? Can you give it to me? And if you deliver what I want, then I'll believe you are who you say, and then I'll follow you. That's the wrong first question. It's the wrong first question because who's in the C-suite? Well, you are, right? You're asking the wrong first question. You're dictating what you absolutely need Jesus has become your assistant, your secretary, that you send to bring you what you want, and then you're hinging your submission and obedience on whether he delivers what you want. That's the wrong first question. Here's the right first question. Jesus, are you the king of kings? Jesus, are you the only rescuer that human beings will ever have? Jesus, are you the only one that reconciles? Jesus, are you the Savior and King of the world? That's the right first question. I'll let you know a little secret. When you answer that question 
yes, you then say whatever you want, right? We ask the wrong first question. We say, well, Lord, we know how our life should go. We know what we should have. Therefore, I'll believe you are who you say you are if you give me what I want. Wrong first question. Right first question, Jesus, are you the king? Are you the savior? Are you the rescuer? Oh, yeah, and in a few weeks at Easter, we celebrate the main evidence that he is who he said he is. And if he is the king, if he is the CEO, if he is the saver and redeemer, then the right response is whatever you say, whatever you say. It's kind of offensive, though, isn't it, to a group of people like us that think we should sit in the C-suite of our lives, think we should sit on the throne and call the shots. How's that working out for you so far? Yeah, just like the world is a mess, as long as you and I sit on the throne of our lives and live in the C-suite, our lives are just a microcosm of the mess in the world. Jesus stepped into the world and he steps up to your life and mine and says, uh, I think I'll take my rightful seat. The right first question, are you who you say you are, Jesus? If so, the right response, whatever you say. I'm going to pray. The next part of our service is uh, baptism. And baptism is really nothing more than a picture of what we've been talking about. So as you watch the baptisms and as you think about what Jesus calls his apprentices to, recommit yourself to that same thing. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for this little uh, instruction concerning what that first group of apprentices are called to do and what we're called to do through them. Lord, I pray that you would help us to ask the right first question. Help us to not ask, Lord, will you do this? Can you do that? And then we'll respond by following. And help us instead to say, Lord, are you who you said? And when you answer yes, help us to say whatever you ask. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.